This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about why recent news in the media businesses matter to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz. And I'm Alex Zintner. In this episode, we're going to take a look at something that we've hinted at before in cases like interviews with John Shields and talk about the blurring lines between technology and media industries and why these distinctions matter, because this has been something that's been in the news a lot recently. So, Amanda, are media and technology different industries? I think they are. And, and I think the more important question here is, does it matter? And the answer to that one is most definitely yes. The key th- issue here is, how do we define an industry? So, defining an industry, that's, that, that's a pretty broad term. Let's get into a little bit more about what that is. And so there are different ways that industries sort of come into being. Now, so there are government classifications, and, and that's relevant because that affects regulation. Um, and that's one definition. But we could also understand an industry as based around what a company does as their core business. And that, I think, is relevant here. Yeah, and I, I think um, what we're going to be looking at in this episode are companies like Google and Facebook and kind of how they're blurring this line and how these distinctions come into play. Right, and I think so the key th- issue there is what is that line? And I think that notion of a line, this isn't a hard and fast rule there about what is one thing versus another, so much as it's about uh, the popular imagination and, and how our perceptions of things change over time, right? It's not as though technology is this whole new thing that didn't exist before, but it is now a bigger part of our economy, and it is actually a multifaceted part of our economy, and yet we still kind of are using this really general term, tech, to refer to a whole lot of different things. And admittedly, we're in pretty nerdy territory here, but these distinctions really do matter. Well, when you look at a tech company, I kind of think of a tech company in my own way, but let's start with how you think of a tech company. Uh, I am honestly at this point not sure that that is a good distinction or a meaningful distinction. I've been digging around a little bit, and Alex Payne, who was at Twitter in the early days and and continues to exist in the the tech space, um, back in 2012, he made the statement that tech company and tech startups are over-applied labels that have had at that point already outlived their usefulness. And he says, calling practically all growing contemporary businesses technology companies is about as useful as calling the enterprises of the industrial era factory companies. It accurately describes an aspect of what they are or were, but it doesn't really capture the totality of their operation. Yeah, when I think about a technology company, I think of I think of companies using technologies for something, you know, whether it's an app, you know, building on the existing iPhone platform to do something, or a particular piece of hardware, you know, you saw a lot of those at CES. That that's what I think of when I think of a specifically technology company. But the thing of it is, is that right now everything is built on technology, right? right. If we actually break down to the core definition of technology, tools and the know-how to use them. And so when Payne made this criticism, I think it was in the context of um, the way in which because calling yourself a tech company does matter, and we'll talk about that in a second, because it matters, you had companies that, let's say, um, were primarily about fast food. But the fact that you had an app that you could order through, they were calling themselves a tech company, right? And and and, and that's where the distinction kind of gets... I, muddied isn't the right word, but that, that's, that seems to me to be a misapplication of the word tech. And that may be. Uh, but let's say, let's look at something like Uber. Is yeah. Uber a tech company? 
on one hand, that's it's very much considered and called that, and sort of the innovation of it is perceived to be around the way in which technology is used in the calling and smart transaction, um, right? But at the core, what is the business there? Like, yeah, no, it's it, about it's transportation, tough, yeah. right? And so, you know, many of these companies that are classified regularly as tech companies, Airbnb, Uber, you know, the idea that they are in the same business as Apple, um, or they are in the same business as, you know, do we consider Comcast the tech industry as internet service providers? I mean, it, that's an interesting point because Comcast gives us access to technology. I I don't know if I'd call them a tech company, but they they give us access to the internet that and that we use for the technology we have in our homes. Right. And so, you know, we could go on forever here talking right. about how blurry <laughs> these things are, but to move into this issue of why they matter, I think we can look at it in, in several ways. Uh, one is, is in terms of, as businesses, and in terms of attracting venture capital. And so that's that realm that really Payne was talking about. Uh, why do companies, if they're offering salads, um, try and say that they are a technology company because they have an app? Uh, well, because if you present yourself as a tech company, you attract different attention than you do if you're not a tech company. And so on a, on a daily basis, you know, what companies get funded, what kind of revenue do they have to show to get funded, all of that has very real financial stakes. Well, and let's get into a little bit about why they might classify themselves as a tech company. And one of the key issues here is regulation and how technology companies are regulated or, quite frankly, the lack thereof of regulation in these cases. Right. And so, in truth, we're not here to talk about Airbnb and Uber. We're actually here to talk about the line between media and tech. And so, in that question, why not be classified as media? Because media are industries that have a history of regulation for various reasons. And so, one of the reasons we've seen this considerable and consistent posturing of companies such as Facebook, of Google, and Netflix trying to claim themselves were tech companies, not media. They, they make that distinction because they don't want to be regulated in the same way that media companies that they compete with are regulated. And you, you have something about the popular imagination here. Depending on how old you are, you probably look at this and you can historicize this differently. But I can remember a time before a world in which figures like uh, Reed Hastings and Sergey Brin were sort of held up as like these great architects of society. Even Steve I Jobs. I know you can't, right? <laughs> uh, so this, it's important to understand that these things are cyclical, historical, and you know, they're in different times, different types of industries fascinated our culture, when we're fascinated by something that's new and seems to have a lot of potential, uh, we, we might be more willing to not be concerned about it or, or believe that it is inherently good. And I think what, what we've really been seeing in the last few months is, is a shift in where we are on the, in those inevitable cycles, where all of a sudden we're, we're starting to question culturally in that imagination, is tech good? Despite these statements of this is you know, why these companies exist, I think there's a finally a bit of clarity of mind coming into the conversation. And I think a lot of that stems from the 2016 election and how technology platforms were manipulated by foreign adversaries to promote certain ideas. I, that's certainly part of it. 
Um, but that popular imagination isn't, this isn't just some idea that doesn't really have material consequences. It, it does, you know, and I, you know, I know you have had peers that have been out there looking for jobs and, you know, think about the, the cachet that comes along with working in the tech industry, let's say, as opposed to... Not only do to, I think about the cachet, I think about the salary. So the cachet that comes with working in an industry that's seen as innovative and, you know, as someone who, you know, left college at a time when the first tech bubble um, was in place, you know, it was very similar. And, and I guess, again, having seen what happens to those salaries and what happens you know, to this imagined innovation when the money goes away, it's a very different environment. And so how it is imagined affects regulation. It affects things like recruiting and, and you, know, incur, you know, what are the industries that you want to go into? Um, and, and of course, then it has implications for other industries that the best and the brightest aren't going into because they think, you know, they know the magic space is, is, is tech land. So regulation and kind of these ideas are going to be important. So I think we've established that technology matters as a concept, but let's get a little bit more into why technology and media are different. Right. So maybe if tech is so messy, maybe we should instead pivot to what defines media industries. The definition that my favorite media economist uses... You have a favorite media economist. I do. I Actually, I like a lot of them. But on this particular <laughs> point, the one I like is Jillian Doyle, um, who defines media firms as those that make intellectual property, package it, and maximize revenues by selling it as many times as feasible to the widest possible audience and at the highest possible price. Now, that might define media industry companies, in short companies that make and circulate intellectual property. But then how would that definition kind of intersect with the definition of technology a technology company? And that's a good point. I think uh, one of the, the things that I have been tracking in these recent years is this way in which even this definition of media company perhaps doesn't continue to hold up, right? Because I think the biggest challenge that we've had is social media. Um, as companies that don't circulate intellectual property. But yet... But there you go. You're coming along. That's exactly where I'm going, right? And so, and if we look at how these companies started, and this is the other thing, is that none of the companies and the behaviors related to these industries stays the same for long. Let's say we have social media that originally starts by you and I sharing how we feel about our day, and it's, you know, our utterances. Um, And so that's not really intellectual property. But over time, that same platform comes to be used significantly as well for the sharing of news stories uh, that are created mostly by legacy media companies. So what am I getting around here? To what degree, you know, do we consider Facebook a media, a member, a part of the media industry because it is a major distributor of intellectual property? And in that this case, the intellectual property is me sharing a link to something I wrote, or a funny picture of me eating a hot dog getting posted. It's happened. Don't judge. It's not just the things that you wrote, though. It's the significant role that these companies are coming to play in circulating the intellectual property created by other commercial industries. That's true. Like, you see... Facebook has become increasingly important to the bottom line of journalism sites. And, it, you know, for a while there, I don't, know, I don't know if that's still the case, and we can explore this, it was the top source 
for news organizations of people coming from social media or other platforms. Yes, both Facebook and Google continue to drive a lot of that traffic. And so that's why we're not going to focus on that here, but that's a good topic for another day. Those shifting policies that Facebook has had regarding um, the access then that those, say it's a New York Times article, the the ability of the New York Times to either get that ad revenue or to be able to track the data of who's reading that um, article. Let's circle back a little bit to these technology companies and how they, or actually to these companies and how they operate as media. And yet there are companies that technically could be considered technology companies, but they've been frequent frequent uh, topics of conversation on this podcast because they're, distri- they're not only technology companies, they're distributing television. We're talking about Netflix, we're talking about Amazon, which is a, techno- which is a company that operates both, you know... in a much larger platform than just television, but let's narrow that down here. Actually, let's set Amazon to the side for a second. And and in fact, by starting a discussion with Facebook and social media, we actually started in the more complicated place. I think the easiest place to start is Netflix. Mm -hmm. Netflix very easily meets Doyle's definition of a media industry. It is exactly what they are doing. They are now making and circulating intellectual property. So the idea that they are gathering data um, or that they are distributing over internet makes them a separate category of media, uh, I think that's really questionable. Trying to keep us thinking that it does put them in a separate category, though, is entirely in Netflix's interest. And so we need to instead you know, sort of ask these questions about, is this thing actually so different? It, it looks like a duck, it quacks like a duck. Perhaps, indeed, it is a duck. So we've established that Netflix... Not only are they circulating series of their own creation, they're circulating other people's series, although less so now than they have. In right, the past. making is not a, a crucial part of nope. being a member of the media industry. Right, just distri- distributing intellectual property, which they were doing from day one. Just because it doesn't distribute television in the way that we're used to seeing or the way that is currently regulated, doesn't mean that it's not television. Yes. I'm not after defining television so much as... Media. Right. right. So just because it distributes using the internet instead of broadcast wave or cable signal does not make it not media. Right. All right. Notably, it does make it not broadcast and it <laughs> not cable. But it is definitely... I, I think we've established in this conversation, it's media. Right. So we have tech companies that are circulating IP... We have others that are making and circulating IP, and yet they are still considered really differently by both Wall Street and by regulators. And, and that's where that difference starts to matter a little bit, because we're looking at different forms of regulation for essentially the same kind of company. Correct. And, um, you know, I think thinking of regulation very broadly, the fact that different companies have different access to capital is also important because that affects what they can do. And and that's really, you know, at the core of of some of those complaints that some in the legacy media industry like John Galangraf have made, right, as they see all the capital that's been made available to a company like Netflix that has enabled it to produce so much content and, Mm -hmm. and just sort of recognize that, the way in which we understand how industries work when playing fields are equal or at least set. And so, you know, trying to even figure out what is the playing field at this point is made really difficult by these varying classifications that affect uh, capital available and affect the different rules that these companies have to follow. Something I think you're getting at here is tech companies 
do tech companies have more readily available access to capital than media? Because it does seem like technology companies are getting all these investments and valuations and all this money getting thrown in their pot, too. Right. It's it's tricky, right? Because when investors are, when they're supporting Netflix as investors by putting their money there, part of what they're looking at is their expectation of, of future revenue, right? And so it's an acknowledgement that, okay, Netflix is this company that, wow, they kind of came in and they're in over half of the U.S. homes at this point, and now they're um, looking to reproduce this service globally. Um yeah, they, they may not be making much money um, as opposed to, let's say, traditional media industries that have been doing this for some time. But, you know, why are we putting our money? Why are we investing? It, it has to do with sort of expectation of what's coming in the future. And so, again, I think this is the issue of why this siloed thinking of media and tech is as being different. It's entirely about the newness of, of tech and sort of this the idea that this distinction is going to persist, I think, is false. Data is not something that is inherent only to new companies. Legacy companies also, um, and we're starting to see the stories now. This It's now not until 2019, but Disney is going to have its own portal. Once you have your own portal, you have access to the same kind of data uh, that Netflix does. And, you know, if, if our argument or somebody's argument... It's not mine. Um, is that what makes Netflix so different and special and not media is is that it's a data company. Um, well, then all of a sudden, Disney's now a data company, too. And, I mean, that's what MoviePass is trying to be, is a data company. They're, they're trying to make money by selling data about its customers to other people. But yet, the movie exhibitors could also collect the same data on you as you go to the movies. Right. So, okay, where are we, right? I think at this point we have we have blurred boundaries. You know, let's find a way out of here. And so I guess the suggested way forward, at least for the point of, of this podcast, is the need to stop siloing uh, these two areas off and to instead recognize the interconnection among what these companies are doing, you know, why we would or wouldn't consider Google or Facebook or Netflix a media company, and to recognize that new industries don't come into creation properly regulated and integrated into society. There is no inherent reason to not regulate these industries. You know, it takes a while to understand what their powers are, what their place is, what are key competitive advantages that maybe need to be moderated by regulation. And I think we're now getting to that point where we can come to understand and think about what are the regulatory frameworks that are appropriate for these companies. Yeah, I mean, that that's a conversation that's just starting to happen uh, in our Congress now. We've seen companies like Facebook and Google and Twitter go and testify on the Hill mostly related to interference in our election, but you're starting to see hints that regulation can and will be coming. Right, and, and I think an important key here is, I've seen sort of this discussion, well, they're too big to regulate, or we can't, and it's like, well, it has nothing to do with size. Let's, right. let's think about what they're doing. And so in the case that you're talking about, you know, a lot of the concern about the abuse that you know was part of the election, that connected back to rules about advertising. Um, and disclosure laws. Mm-hmm. And you know, again, radio, television did not come into the world with those rules already established. The FCC. We had a moment of crisis. 
We recognized there was problems. We created rules because the abuse and the danger were recognized. Now, is there a reason to think that uh, internet distributed communication shouldn't be subject to exactly the same kind of regulations that we find in other distribution technologies? Probably not. We just hadn't fully realized it until now. And, and, and so you know, I think maybe it, it helps, especially in terms of the multifacetedness of some of these companies, mm-hmm. to not think about like regulating Google or regulating Facebook as much as, well, um, we regulate advertising on other platforms. We need to regulate advertising in a consistent way on these platforms. Right, because Google and Facebook are, to a major extent, advertising companies. I mean, with Facebook, you don't think necessarily of it as advertising at first glance, but that's where they make most of their money. With Google, most of their money comes from advertising, not necessarily for the search, maps, emails that you use every day. Ab- that is, is, is an important and very true statement. I mean, the comparison between Facebook and the broadcast networks, if you actually look at what is at the core of their businesses, you're, you're absolutely um, right. These are parallel industries. It's just the difference was that in the case of broadcast networks, what are they doing? They're selling audience attention to advertisers. What did they do to gather that audience attention? They made television programs. In the case of Facebook, they, this is the ingenious part of it, right? Um, they're not even creating content to gather our attention. Instead, they're letting us you know, share our own content, and so they don't even have that huge cost, but they are selling attention in every bit the same way that traditional media industries have. But yet, now that you said Facebook isn't creating content, Facebook is creating content. Well, they're starting yes. to produce their own original programming, like... For example, Apple, which now has access to a billion dollars in capital for original television programming and has a show with Reese Witherspoon and Jennifer Aniston coming at some point. Okay, so you just said very a, lot of words. a lot of words, right? But let's, let's, so, so let's start to break that down a bit so then. Correct. It is a true fact that Facebook is spending some money on content. It is not in any way enough to say, oh, it's now doing the same thing as those other industries that put right. so much money into IP. So let's just acknowledge that. Apple, now that's a whole other thing. I don't think we have enough data yet to have an intelligent conversation about why Apple is creating content and right. um, what they're doing with it. As far as I know, um, it isn't ad-supported. No, I do not believe. Um, the shows that they have right now, Battle of the Apps and uh, Carpool Karaoke, I do not believe are ad-supported. Okay, so again, here we have this quick slide, you know, through tech companies putting things together that don't really go together, but, but we think they do. But it's it's also subscription-based, because they're tying it into their Apple Music service that already exists. Yes, but that's why we can talk about... Apple and have it in the same conversation as Netflix, as HBO, as Spotify. Yeah, and and that is a different conversation. Actually, I'm going to push to put Spotify in a slightly different category just because so much of its use is on the freemium level. Um, But in theory, yes. Um, And so that universe of subscriber-funded media, whether it's distributed by internet or by cable, it's a whole other conversation than Facebook and Google, even though, like, right now, the, these these acronyms that are being thrown around, GAFA, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, or FANG, which may have one or two who knows how many A's in it for Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, you know, those companies, or thinking about those companies as all one thing isn't particularly helpful. 
Let's go back a little bit to regulation and how these companies should be regulated. (laughs) Right. So I think part of that is keeping in mind why regulation exists in the first place. The, The question is much less, does it use the internet or does it have a business model that leverages data, the kind of things that investors might focus on, but more, does it play a key role in the circulation of ideas and information in society? Those were the core reasons that explain the regulation that we have of broadcasting and and to a decent degree cable. Now, I'm not saying that these companies should be regulated just like broadcasters. Because they're so different from broadcasters. Right, and and they're they're certainly not using a resource that is part of the public good in the way that, you know, is the core of broadcast regulation here in the States. The current situation raises really challenging questions, uh, the first of which is are questions related to whether and how to regulate Internet-distributed video, because we don't have a long history of this in the United States, um, although much of the rest of the world does have a history of regulating video more extensively than we do, you know, and to encourage certain pro-social goals. Um, so mm-hmm. what I'm thinking about is uh, some of the requirements about that exist for distributors in other countries that were designed to make sure that they weren't just buying a ton of American content and that that it was possible to produce local content. Um, But how does that come into play in terms of, um, we don't really regulate the content on cable, right? We don't. The United States doesn't. But what what has happened here is that historically we have national frameworks for regulation, but Mm -hmm. we now have internet, uh, we now have international video distribution outlets, right? And so the key, while they're not burning questions here in the States, they are actually burning questions right now in front of the EU and in many other countries around the world where the uncertainty about, you know, do we regulate internet-distributed video the same way that we regulate broadcasting cable in terms of these rules about how much of it needs to be local content and in order to preserve uh, local production or to encourage... Yeah, other countries do have a history of regulating these companies in a lot stronger way. Like, Google um, has been regulated by the EU with some... I remember the case, The Right to be Forgotten, Mm -hmm. where a man sued Google to remove something... I don't know if embarrassing is the right word. I think it was something that he didn't feel like should be in his search results when you mm-hmm. Googled his name, but he wanted Google to get rid of it, and he sued, and the EU sided in his favor and said, you have a right to remove things from your Google search history. Right, and so I mean, what we're really talking about here is the way in which um, our communication technologies are not bound to national boundaries any longer. Um, and so... We all, different countries have different regulations because different countries have different priorities, goals, cultural norms, and and then what do you do? And it just happens to be that the United States is the home of all of these, you know, companies that are now international, global, and, you know, wanting, seeking to have the same rules everywhere. But that's, that's really not a reasonable expectation. But let's get to your second question here. Right. With the arrival of internet distributed video, the entire ecosystem has changed. The logics and the rules that um, undergirded 
broadcast regulation in some ways need to be reconsidered because broadcasting doesn't exist in the same world that it did before. It now exists in the world where it competes with a service that doesn't have scarcity. Um, and that's a really different environment. So it's not just a matter of regulating Netflix, but also reconsidering the, the logic and the policy for regulating broadcast and cable channels that compete in the same ecosystem. So what is the answer? To the- <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Because you've you proposed yeah. a lot of questions yeah. here, but I don't think there's an answer. <laughs> Indeed, and sadly, our listeners, uh, <laughs> sorry, I don't have one yet. Um, but I think we need to start having much more sophisticated conversations than you know, sort of where we started. You know, is something a tech company or not? Is it internet distributed? And, and figure, well, that says it all. Because you'd have to define that. And defining that even, you know, we, we talked for 20-something minutes about these definitions. And we're, we still haven't settled on something precise. Yeah, really, the affordance of internet distribution of being able to send many signals simultaneously really challenges a lot of the notions, such as scarcity, um, that were key justifications for many broadcast regulations. And I, and I don't say that, you know, and I, I'm, I'm wary of saying that, as you know, that it'll be picked up as like, all right, we need to just get rid of all those regulations. And I, like, that's not the case. But we also need to talk about what makes sense in the current ecosystem. So this is where that comparison between media and tech comes in. Internet distribution changes media ecosystems so profoundly that we really need to go back to what values do we hold most dear. Uh, Historically, a lot of U.S. policy has been based around trying to maintain localism and diversity of voices. Internet distribution has profoundly challenged localism because of the economic factors that make internet distribution so valuable, those economies of scale. Um, They're contrary to localism. And that's across all media. It's not just broadcast. Um, And it isn't really clear at this point that commercial local media can persist or at least persist in a a valuable way. And, and, And that is a new challenge, let's say, that didn't exist when existing policy was written. And so maybe it's the case that we need to identify what are the core problems of the modern age and regulate accordingly. And yet that's something that, you know, you bring up localism. I think of the work of um, one of my favorite Twitter follows, Joseph Lichterman, um, who used to be of Neiman Lab and now works with a nonprofit company that's looking to help local journalism break through in kind of this new age. And I think about what the work they're doing to try to help build followings for local newspapers on these digital platforms and how, yes, there are new challenges, but there are challenges that these companies can kind of approach from the standpoint of, okay, we need to survive here. How do we do this? And he, he's one of my favorite people I follow on Twitter. Yeah. We've said a lot of words. Um, I think we've we've talked about the complexity of these categorizations. Maybe about, confuse some of our listeners. <laughs> about why these sort of blunt categorizations are not particularly helpful. But I, the takeaway here, um, I think, is that these classifications do matter. Um, and They're confusing. They're muddled. And these media worlds in which we exist in are continuing to evolve. And so definitions of media probably have to expand to encompass the new ecosystem. And, you know, in order to be useful, considerations of tech probably have to become more specific and defined. 
and now it's time for the last segment of each and every show, What We're Watching This Week. Amanda, what are you watching? I have been um, quickly burning through Netflix six-episode series, Alias Grace. I really liked Alias Grace. I just binged it myself. I have one episode to go, so I'm not exactly <laughs> sure how it ends up. But, um, yeah, no, really compelling. Um, I, I didn't <clears> even <throat> know what it was about. I'd just seen it in, in a few critics' best-of lists and very quickly got sucked in. Alex, what have you been watching? I've been watching another Netflix show, The End of the Effing World. It's a British comedy-ish, um, dark, very dark comedy, very short, like, eight 20-minute episodes. I burned through it really quickly. And not only does it have very compelling characters and very compelling lead performances, it, it's just, I don't know, fun isn't the right word given kind of the dark nature of the subject matter, but, like, you're watching two people. It, it's a coming-of-age story in a way that I haven't really seen that well-told genre before. I should also say, as we're talking, um, because it's, it's relevant to media business, that I discovered over the holiday that uh, now on my Apple TV is the Amazon Prime app. Mm. And I had, it was a, an interesting lesson in what we will call friction, um, <laughs> as, as these things are discussed. Now, mind you, I have had Amazon Prime for years, and I've watched very little of their video. Bec- and I even knew that I could throw it from my phone, to the, you know, I knew, but I never did it. Since we discovered uh, the Amazon Prime on the Apple TV, uh, we, for a good three weeks, watched nothing but Amazon video. So uh, that was really an interesting finding for me in terms of just how easy uh, you have to make it in order for people to move fluidly uh, across their your different platforms. Yeah, my streaming box, so to speak, is an Amazon Fire Stick, so I never really had right. that problem. Um, but have you watched... Catastrophe and the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I have not gotten to Miss Maisel yet, but uh, we did all the episodes of Catastrophe in a very short amount of time, and it was delightful. It is a great show. Mrs. Maisel, oh, I love that thing so much. You, I strongly recommend to all of my our listeners who haven't seen it, and to you, Amanda. Uh, I will report back soon. And that's it for this week's edition of Media Business Matters. If you want to learn more about our show, you can go to amandalots.com and click on the podcast link at the top of the page. If you want new episodes delivered to your feed as soon as they're available, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe on Apple Podcasts and on the Google Play Store. And if you do listen to us on those platforms, please rate and review us. It helps new listeners find the show. Amanda, where can we find you on Twitter? At Dr. TV Lots. D-R-T-V-L-O-T-Z. And you can find me at Alex Entner. That's Alex, I-N-T-N-E-R. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll be back real soon.